0: Hi everybody, I'm Cindy Mooring, the Founder and Executive Chair of the Business Integrity Leadership Initiative at the CMM Walton College of Business. And this is The Biz, the Business Integrity School podcast. Here, we talk about applying ethics, integrity, and courageous leadership in business, education, and most importantly, your life today. I've had nearly 30 years of real-world experience as a senior executive. So if you're looking for practical tips from a business pro who's actually been there, then this is the podcast for you. Welcome, let's get started. I have with me today, Professor Linda Trevino, and I'm so excited to have you here with us today. Linda, thank you so much for joining us. I'm
1: happy to be here, thanks for inviting me. You bet.
0: I've had the pleasure of knowing Linda for over 10 years in the industry. She is a professor at Penn State and has been there since 87. She's the Distinguished Professor of Organizational Behavior and Ethics and the Director of the Shoemaker Program in Business Ethics in the Smeal College of Business. She served as chair of the Department of Management and Organization from 99 to 04, and she holds a Ph.D. in Management from Texas A&M University, and as many of you will know, her research and writing on the management of ethical conduct in organizations is very widely published and is known internationally as well, and I'm just really excited to have the opportunity to dive into this conversation with you today, Linda. Should be fun. Yeah, I agree. So we are uh, exploring through a series of just videos and podcasts how the field of ethics, leadership to the extent that it's included within their integrity, um, governance, risk management, how all of that has really advanced over the last uh, 25 years or so. And in particular, with respect to business ethics, several years ago, it was criticized for the way it was taught at universities. And the I thought was then it was too general and too theoretical and just impractical. It wasn't of any use to students. So you were teaching then. I'd like to know what your um, thoughts were about that back then and and whether or not you think it's still the case today.
1: So it's, it's funny, uh, I was Doing research in the area of behavioral and organizational ethics. I actually wasn't teaching business ethics in 1993 when Andrew Stark wrote his article. Um, I was teaching organizational behavior. And one of the reasons, and management, and one of the reasons that I wasn't is because I couldn't find a textbook that. I wanted to use and would feel comfortable using. So at that time, um, virtually all of the textbooks were written by philosophers and they would lay out, this is, I'm generalizing, but I think it it represents most of the textbooks. They would uh, lay out the normative theories and then apply them to cases and say, this is what you should do. and and that, you know, that's useful, Um, but it just wasn't me. I'm not a philosopher, uh, and I'm very open about that. I am a social scientist, and I saw business ethics as a management issue, and that's the way I, I had been studying it. That's the way I intended to study it, so I ended up having to write one, and Uh, And I did. And it it was the first edition was published in 1995. And uh, that's around the time I think I started teaching it. Great.
0: So at the time, um, sounds like you would have agreed that uh, back in the day, business ethics and the way universities were approaching it was more from the theoretical and philosophical perspective. And so What I hear you saying is you added your voice to that in a completely different way and added a number of um, different elements to it. So I really want to talk about the future of all of that. But first we have to go through where we are today and what the advancements are that have been made in the last 25 years before we can really kind of get to where does it need to go in the future. Um, And I think you've made some very dramatic uh, advancements in the way business ethics um, is thought about and uh, now taught and I know that you are both teach and do some research mm-hmm. uh, but the behavioral ethics side of it is a in the social science side of it is a really big piece to me mm-hmm. um, that you've added that um, uh, you've put your fingerprints on and there certainly are addressed in your book can you talk a little bit about that and how you think it's advanced the field to where it is today
1: yeah, I think it really has made a huge difference. So we still have people in the field of business ethics who come from these different backgrounds. And I think they they all have contributions to make. But I clearly was trained as a social scientist, and that's the path that I was going to pursue. I was very much alone when I first started it. Um, there were a few people out there who had done, you know, a, a study here and there, but there really was very little. When I first started working on my PhD, it was the 1980s and um, mid 1980s, and we had scandals, uh, which people thought were unique <laughs> to them. <laughs> um, you know, this business ethics thing is a fad, you know, it's gonna, we, we're not gonna need it in a few years. And I always came at it from basically a couple of perspectives. So, you know, if you study organizational behavior, you look at individual differences, things about people that might influence their behavior. Some people, you know, have different personalities and other characteristics that might make them more prone to engage in certain kinds of behaviors but there's also environments. So, Linda, you've made
0: a number of advancements uh, in the field with this thinking about, you know, kind of behavioral uh, ethics and social science and all of that and actually co-authored um, an article with a professor at the University of Arkansas that I work with, Jennifer Gebhardt, mm-hmm. who was a student of yours back in the day. Oh, well, she was. Um, but it was a really great article where they mm-hmm. talked a little bit about um, bad apples and bad cases, and bad barrels, and um, the article was in the, um, the academic article was in the Journal of uh, Psychology, Applied Psychology, I think it was, about 10 years Mm -hmm. ago, but the article was just brought current again this year, and um, was on the website for the Network of Business Sustainability, and they made it, you know, applicable to sort of the events of today, but could you tell us a little bit about what was meant by bad apples and bad cases and, and, uh, bad barrels.
1: Yeah. And I will also give credit to David Harrison, who, um, was also on that paper. It was a meta analysis and he was an expert in how to do those. So uh, meta analysis is a study of studies. Uh-huh. So what we, what we did was pull together. Um, and I have to say Jennifer did most of the actual legwork on this. Um, so pulled together a whole bunch of studies that had looked at uh, this question about what makes people make ethical choices. Uh, you know, is it something about the individual individual characteristics that, that had been studied? Uh-huh. Um, is it something about the situation, um, you know, like the moral intensity of the situation, uh, the case? Or is it something about the context? Is it something about the climate or culture? When something bad happens, um, let's take the case of Wells Fargo, which I think a lot of people are familiar with. Sure. They had a lot of problems with um, their salespeople engaging in behavior where they were opening accounts for people that people didn't want. Um and it it got pretty serious uh, to the point where they were committing fraud and this kept happening and it happened over years and the bank knew about it but and they put in place things like some training and and they fired a lot of people.
0: yeah they did
1: they did over five thousand right Now I think if you're firing five thousand, 5,300, I think, was the number. If you're firing that many people, Mm -hmm. I don't think it's a bad apples problem. I think you need to look at other potential problems. Right. And if you look at that organization, um, it, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that there was something rotten in the barrel that was causing people to behave this way. And the incentive structure that they had Um, that went all the way from the top down through layers in the organization, uh, basically incentivized this behavior. Right. And people feared that if they didn't do these things, that they'd get fired. Right. And this was happening uh, post-financial crisis, the last one, not this one. And um, there weren't a lot of opportunities out there. So people felt like they had no choice but to engage in these behaviors and their managers were incentivized too for their people to, and and the bottom line was that the the CEO even, um, I think in writing, wanted people, wanted every employee to shoot for selling each customer eight products when the industry average was between two and three
0: so quite a stretch goal
1: there yeah it's more than stretch it's break. right, right. right? It's, you're stretching so far that that you're going to break
0: and it breaks
1: and it, it was basically an impossible goal and they kind of knew it um but they justified away all of the bad behavior they were seeing as something that happens in a retail environment So the way they talked about themselves was that we're a retail uh, establishment. They had a lot of turnover too. They said, well, you see that, you see that in retail. Yes. Um, Instead of thinking about themselves as a bank where you don't see as much turnover. Right. So they weren't looking at the root cause. They weren't looking at the culture of the organization and especially the performance management system, which is such a key part of the culture. And leadership messaging. Um, So so if you think about, you know, it could be something about people. You could have 5,000 bad people, but I don't think so. Um, So maybe there's something about the organization that's influencing those people um, to behave the way they are. You know, it could be leaders. It could be the reward system. um, It could be, you know, other kinds of climate and culture. Right, of-
0: right, right. So they truly had a, a bad barrel problem, uh, almost a systemic cultural issue. Yes. You know, and I see some parallels to that with some of the other issues that, that are in the news you know, more recently, if you kind of bring it current into today with racism and some of the police brutality and that thought of reframing a cultural police force reference from well, two, guardian, from warrior. I mean, even those words just bring about such different, you know, visions in your mind. They do. And so you can see where that could definitely address the cultural kind of bad, bad barrel or systemic issues, if you will. Um, similar to like in an organization when you have to truly sit back and look at the incentive systems that have been devised mm-hmm. and to figure out whether or not you're in system systems, incentive systems, like what you were talking about with Wells. Uh, are, are designed in a way that it's going to literally push individuals to obtain it at you know, all costs because they know they'll get a big bonus, if you will, for example.
1: It's understanding your role as a manager, understanding how people behave and think, um, understanding how the organizational system is likely to influence their behavior. I mean, that's so key. I think uh, for aspiring manager, charmed a whole bunch of old men, board members um, that <laughs> she put on the board, um, including Henry Kissinger and George Schultz. Oh, I know. And um, it's just a fascinating story because it the whole basis for the company was a fraud. Yes. Um, I mean, I think she had an idea that she thought she could pull off and then she couldn't and she never admitted it. Um, and so many, uh, people were, were fooled and companies were, um, uh, you know, partnering with, with her and, oh, just a nightmare. I mean,
0: I think it was $8 billion at one point. It was a huge company.
1: Yes, it was, it was yeah. valued at 8 valued billion.
0: Valued at, right.
1: Yeah. yeah. And, um, to me, one of the most interesting things was there were some young people who worked there, um, I think all of them Stanford, uh, either grads or people who didn't graduate, you know, which is the thing to do, I guess. <laughs> and um, Tyler Schultz was among them and he was uh, the grandson of George Schultz who was on right. the board. Yep. And um, he's the one who ended up talking with this Wall Street Journal reporter and um, being the whistleblower. And actually, I encourage people to look for an interview with him that was done at um, Santa Clara University that I've used in my class, because it's really fascinating to listen to him talk about his decision making around um, deciding to be a whistleblower and to talk to the reporter when everybody was telling him not to. Not
0: to, including his grandfather at one point. Yeah.
1: Oh, his grandfather very much against it. Yeah. Um, And a friend of his who was ended up also being a a whistleblower, but she was, um, I guess, Asian, an Asian name. She ended up just leaving and going to Hong Kong. She just wanted to get out of here. Um, But yeah, that, that to me is fascinating. Um, I loved that one. Watch the movie and read
0: the book too. It was really good. Well, Linda, thank you so very much for your time, you your stories, um, your advancements in the industry and your thoughts on where it needs to go into the future. I really, really appreciate it. This has been great.
1: Yeah, I've enjoyed it. Thank All you. right.
0: Thanks, Linda. Thanks for listening to today's episode of The Biz, The Business Integrity School. You can find us on YouTube, Google SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever you find your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and rate us. And you can find us by searching The Biz. That's one word, T-H-E-B-I-S. Tune in next time for more practical tips from a pro.